there is no monster more famous, actually, than Godzilla. Godzilla came on the scene. First movie he was in, 1954. Uh, last movie he was in, 2014. He has starred in over 30 movies. He showed up in another 10. Godzilla is most certainly the most famous monster. His uh, name, actually, two Japanese words. One is gorilla, and the other is whale. I, I think that the whale thing is, deals with his aquatic uh, nature. When, in the early movie, 1954, the way Godzilla came about is a uh, H-bomb goes off over Japan, and that awakens Godzilla from the deep. And so Godzilla, I don't know if he was having a, a good dream or he enjoyed his sleep, but he comes out and he's mad, right? He comes out, he hits the, uh, the, the, the beach, uh, comes into the mainland, and he is just, to say, spitting nails, but kind of like fire. It's fire, radiation. He's vaporizing women and children. Anyone who gets in his way, it's not like he's just trying to get somebody. Anybody, anyone who crosses paths with Godzilla is out of it. He takes out the infrastructure. He's pulling on trains, you know, and all the... the wonderful uh, historic moments of Godzilla. He's wreaking destruction everywhere he goes. He's, his eyes are, are glowing red. He's just angry. You know, anger does that, doesn't it? Anger can, you're going through life. It's going okay. It's, it's, it's life. But something happens. Some bomb is dropped and suddenly awakened inside your heart is... Godzilla? And all kinds of things are spewing out or happening. And, and anger can take the most kind, amicable, uh, godly person and turn them into a just a monster. We, we got a, a video to, to illustrate this a little bit. <laughs> anger turns us into monsters, doesn't it? <laughs> now, I'm so grateful. See, I don't have a problem with this. This is not one of my issues. This is just everyone else's problem, not mine. One day we were uh, we, we decided to get a live Christmas tree. I grew up with artificial Christmas trees. Uh, trees grew up with artificial Christmas trees. But when all of our kids were little, you know, we saw enough television shows and stuff. We said we should make a memory and let's go out and cut down a Christmas tree and bring it home and and do it the right way. So we did, and we got the kids all bundled up and went to a Christmas tree farm and picked out the Christmas tree among a big fight and, and finally cut it down. Although I didn't do a great job, but got it home. It's in my living room. And the kids are all sitting at the table eating, eating and I'm thinking, it's my t- I should get this ready to go in the tree stand. Now, I've never done this before, and I have, like, zero mechanical carpentry skill. I'm thinking, okay, now, what do I, how do I do this? So I, I was smart enough to figure I should measure the, the stand and so that the branches aren't in the way. And, uh, but how do you cut them off? I got a circular saw. That'll do it. And so I got the circular saw that someone gave me, and it yet still worked. And so I cut off the branches. Kind of as difficult with the circular saw, but I made it work. But then I had to get the trunk level so that the tree wasn't standing like this. So I'm cutting with the circular saw, but the, the trunk was too big, so I'm kind of rolling the tree around trying to cut it. And I got it finally done, and it was more crooked than before. And so I'm going, crying out loud. So I'm cutting more branches off, and I'm cutting it again, and, and same sort of thing. And the veins in my neck are growing out, and I'm getting very red. And my, my kids sitting at the table, you know, eating, are listening to me. You know, and I was upset at the tree, at the maker of the saw, at, at Christmas. Maybe I'd be Jewish. I don't know. The couch was in the way, and I was just, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who can't walk with a circular saw ticked off in the house. This is not a good combination. But it was, by the time I got done, my kids were praying for me. My seven-foot Christmas tree was now three and a half feet tall, and it was still standing like this. 
Next year, I bought myself a, 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 what's it called? Chainsaw. Yeah, I figured it out. And I let my son do it. So we're much better. We do it much better now. Um, it's not as bad. Uh, anger. My goodness. You know, anger is not one of those things. It's just other people. It's most of us, I'm guessing, we're not going to take a show of hands. But, but if we were to ask you, did you ever have a time where you erupted like that? Maybe you said some things, you did some things that you wish so much you could go back and redo. You've just created incredible damage, and though you go and apologize, and they're gracious maybe and say you're forgiven and it's okay, you still know incredible damage has been done. And they're never going to just forget that. I mean, that Godzilla thing is inside of, 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 of all of us. And it creates some, some substantial damage. I think this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 37, he says, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. You, you know, the, the psychologists, doctors tell us, research says that there is nothing more... Um, strenuous on your body uh, in a normal life, not even a strong workout, nothing is more dangerous for your body than anger. Anger is said to be a culprit in um, peptic ulcers, some forms of colitis, arthritis, chronic bladder and kidney infection, migraine headaches, some respiratory issues, hypertension, cardiac issues, and a lowered immune system. Uh, Anger affects us. In a major way, anger affects us emotionally. Uh, uh, Minerth and Meyer Clinic, psychiatrists say that 95% of all chronic depression or clinical depression is related to unresolved anger. 95% of this. Of course, it works uh, emotionally or relationally as well. Stories told of, of uh, Alexander the Great who when he came to his uh, to check out his, his people, his, his, his army, one of his generals, Cletus, who was a childhood, this is true, one of his, his uh, friends from childhood was one of his generals, Cletus. And Cletus was intoxicated and was mocking Alexander in front of the men. And Alexander told him to be quiet, uh, but he kept going. And so in rage, Alexander the Great grabbed a spear from from guy standing by and hurled it at Cletus. He said that he was just trying to scare him. He was just trying to get around, but his aim was too good. Killed his childhood friend in, in rage. When he realized what he did, he grabbed the spear. He tried to take his own life, and his men stopped him. He was sick in bed for days, uh, crying out for his friend and chiding himself for being a murderer. Guilt and pain. It, it, does major work. Dr. Richard Walter, psychiatrist, writes this regarding anger. He says, people will be murdered today because of someone's anger. Others will die from physical ailments resulting from or aggravated, aggravated by their angry feelings. Many people die in anger-related auto accidents, while others carrying out the great, angriest act of all will commit suicide. Countless relationships die little by little as resentment gnaws away at the foundation of love and trust. Anger is a devastating force and its consequences should sicken us. Anger-related destruction of human life and spirit is the incredible national disaster. It's personal tragedy. It's a personal tragedy in the lives of millions. Anger. Well, is it, is it, is it, here's a good question. Is it ever okay to be angry? Is all anger sin? It's a great question because Anger in and of itself is not 
sin, or all anger is not sin. And we know this because of God. God gets angry. In Exodus 34, he tells us about himself. Uh, Moses says, God, I really want to know you. I really want to know you. Would you show yourself to me? Would you tell me who you are? And so God says, okay, Moses. And so he puts Moses in a cleft of the rock. And as he passes by, he says this, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and, and Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Now, God doesn't say no anger. It says slow to anger. There, there is a, a, a righteous anger. But God is wrathful. And we think, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he was kind of mean. But look how God describes himself. Slow to anger. And it's covered with all kinds of gracious and compassionate and abounding in love and willing to forgive sin and wickedness and rebellion all over the place. That There is that degree, though, and this is how it works for us. Anger is, is really a portion of love. And this is, this, if you think of what you love, what's in your heart, what do you love? When that is threatened, you get angry. Your children, something endangers their life. You know what? As a loving parent, you would get very angry. You want to protect. Problem is this. We have taken things, nice things, but they're secondary status things, and we've made them primary. We've put them number one in our heart. We love them with a love that only should be directed towards God. So when those things are threatened, we get angry. If you want to know what you really love, what do you get angry about? That will, that will tell you. Uh, Jesus got angry, right? The, 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 the whip cord, he's going to clear the temple, uh, the Pharisees, Mark 3. Uh, Jesus was, 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 was angry. There was righteous anger. And right away, you and I will say, well, that's, that's my kind of anger, man. See, uh, when I get angry, it's, it's righteous anger, just so we all know. Now, uh, think about Jesus for a minute. Did he manifest anger when his friends betrayed him? Judas betrayed him. Good friend. Did he manifest anger when his friends ran away from him? Did he manifest anger when he was in kangaroo court and false witnesses lying injustice all over the place? Uh, even their, 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 their lies didn't match up. So they still, though, found him guilty. Did Jesus manifest anger there when they uh, were piercing his hands? And, and did he manifest anger when he was bearing the shame and the guilt when he died as he died? Totally unjust. Did, did, he, did he manifest anger there? No. Often our anger is related to something that hurts us and we claim it is to be righteous anger. But, but Jesus never manifested anger when it was a personal cost involved. I think it's safe to say that God can... He's going to do righteous anger, of course. Jesus will do righteous anger, of course. But you and I, we should start with the assumption that all of our anger is unrighteous anger. I'm not saying that all of it is, but we've got to start with that assumption yeah, it probably is. This is why Paul can say unequivocally in Ephesians 4, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of all bitterness and all anger and all rage. It's like you're cleaning the fridge and you find that thing in the back that's been there who knows how long and it's smelling like who knows what and it's really it's looking awful. You're not even sure what it is anymore you're probably not going to put it back. 
You're going to get rid of this thing. Ah! That you go to the doctor and he says, I've got, we found a spot on your lung. You're not going to say, well, just move part of it because I want to keep part of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of all of it. It's with that kind of intensity that you and I are being commanded, right, by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to get rid of. So we can't just say, well, I, I can't control it. No, no, no. If we couldn't control it, he would not command us to get rid of it. We can't. We have, we have a, a voice in this. We do. Get rid of it. Get rid of, uh, of that. that. That's the, the, the uh, idea. So we're starting off with the assumption that my anger is unrighteous anger. Scripture has a lot on this. Proverbs chapter 29. Fools give full vent to their rage. But the wise bring calm in the end. Next. Better a patient person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes a city. If you think about this, your anger very seldom, if ever, does anything positive. Most always, it's one of these things that we regret, we feel bad about, we wish not. It usually, it's like the Godzilla thing, leaves a wake of destruction. And Scripture says the wise person recognizes that, doesn't just blame my anger as righteous anger, and goes from there. Now, a case study. Let's look at a case study. Because you've got to ask yourself, how does a Christian righteous person um, get angry? Uh, Jonah. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Jonah. We'll have the verses on the screen, though. But Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. It's towards the end of the book. It says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Now, what, what is it? talking about let's back up for just a second because you know the story of Jonah Uh, Jonah was a a prophet he was the mouthpiece of God they didn't the way God got his message across to his people is God designated the prophets you didn't just kind of sign up for this you didn't say I think I'll be a prophet when I grow up God called you Jonah uh, opted out and said okay Lord I'm going to go with you that that's great he's connected to God's heart when God had a message he spoke through Jonah. Jonah was the prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel in about 750 BC. Now, this is what you got. The only, only other place in the book of Jonah, I think there's one other place, but that we find out something about him is 2 Kings 14. Look what it says. It says that he, and that he there, is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeroboam II. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. What does that mean? It means this, that not since Solomon was the kingdom of Israel as powerful as it was here. This was the second golden age of Israel. Their boundaries were pushed out farther than they had been. Uh, the nation was a leader. Israel was once again the superpower in the area. They were leading economically and military. Everybody was afraid of of them. The Edomites were afraid of them. The uh, um, Arameans were afraid of them. The new kid on the block, the bully, the Assyrians, they were even kind of afraid of of them as well. And and these guys, the uh, uh, Assyrians, were... were, were, uh, causing some trouble, but Israel was pushing them out as well. Israel, Israel was on its way. Assyria was on the run, and, and Israel was, was getting ready to take them out. And just when they're getting ready to invade maybe Nineveh, you've got, you've got Jonah and you've got Jeroboam kind of high-fiving each other, and all of a sudden God comes to Jonah. And maybe God's got that reflective look in his eye or whatever. He says, hey, Jonah, 
you know, I've been thinking, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, well, you know, we got our swords sharpened. We're on our way. God says, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I want you to go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah's going, what? What? So Jonah goes the other direction, right? He takes off the other direction. That's how the book gets going. And he's on a boat and he's going the wrong way. And the sailors throw him into the ocean because the storm and the wind, they're all going to die anyway. And as soon as he gets the water, a fish swallows him up and he's hanging out in the belly of a fish. In chapter two of Jonah, uh, Jonah's realizing this being a prophet thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. And, but okay, God, I guess I'll go. And so the fish throws Jonah up uh, onto the, on the shores. Jonah then walks. So then we get to chapter three. And what do we got? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah second time go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh now Nineveh was a very large city it took three days to go through it and Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming this is what this is what his message was 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown that's it not a whole lot of hope in that message. It's not really a seeker-sensitive message. Not a lot of jokes and make you laugh type of stuff. This is pretty much a, it's a very small but a very downer type message. You guys are dead. Just 40 more days and get your stuff in order because can you spell us best to suit? You are dead. God is over. You guys are finished. That's the message. Now the goofy thing is, and this is why I kind of like this because of my own preaching, because even with whoever's preaching, God can work. And right here, what happens is God brings about an um, evangelistic campaign that, that was just incredible. The entire city of Nineveh repents with this kind of a message. They all repent. The king and his officers and the common people. And, 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 and so what they do is they, they start fasting. They're not sure how to do this. They're fasting, though. And they're, they're, they're decked out with, with um, sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning. They're very, very sorry. They really don't know how to do this because they make their animals fast as well and put sackcloth. They're very, very sorry this is going on. And so God sees this. Of course, God knew this was going to happen. This is probably why he sent Jonah there. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Well, Jonah's struggling with this. Back to chapter 4, verse 1. But with Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're gracious and compassionate God. See, he had the scripture memorized. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now, you ask yourself, why is Jonah so upset about this? These guys just all, we'd say, became Christians, as it were. But the the Old Testament person's not thinking these guys are going to be nice now and then go to heaven when they die. That's not what what he's thinking. Um, Jonah knows that 1,500 years earlier, God came to Abraham. And God said, Abraham... Your people will be my people, and your enemies will be my enemies. Jonah knows this. And Jonah's wondering, is God changing sides? Is God kind of taking off his blessings and and who he is and moving into the Assyrian camp and leaving us? Um, Jonah knows, 2 Kings 14, as well as the book of Amos, 
tell us that, that what was going on in Israel at this point, they were becoming very affluent. They were having lots of success, victory, and it goes to their head. And so they get into idolatry, they get into witchcraft, they get into the, the upper crust are living, you know, just with extravagant luxury. The lower crust are all starving to death. There's no care. If you can buy the courts, you own the courts. There's no such thing as, as justice. This is what's going on in the nation. And Jonah knows these people over here just repented. He's a prophet. He knows what all of this means. Oh, no. God is leaving us for them. Uh, Jonah recognizes perhaps that this is going to make him look bad. Can, can you imagine if, if he would have went to Nineveh, just he and God, and it would have blown up the whole, you know, it's like the Washington, D.C. Of, of Assyria, just single-handedly. He clobbered all the Washington, D.C. of Assyria. He would come back home, and he would be a rock star, man. It's like, whoa, he killed all the Assyria single-handedly. Yeah, yeah, it's me. It would have been great. But now he's got to go back home. And the people know, well, no. That Jonah took their God, their secret weapon, and gave him to the Assyrians. Jonah, what are you doing? Jonah knows, I can't go back home. And this is done. Maybe Jonah has an over-realized sense of justice. Because the, the, the Assyrians, they were known for their cruel, barbarian treatment of their captives when they captured people, they practiced just just horrific, inhumane torture, uh, and their thought was they would drive fear and deeply into everyone's heart so that they would give up without even any kind of a battle. That was the, the thought. And so they would, it was just awful. And maybe Jonah's saying, Lord, these people don't deserve a second chance. You know what they've done. You know the hideous things that they've done, the unjust things that they've accomplished. How can you cut them slack? And yeah, the few tears. And and what is that about? He said, I know that you would do this. You're just like this. I know. I know you're a softy God. He's like, oh, you're going to forgive everybody. Well, these guys don't need or deserve to be forgiven. I knew this would happen. So he, he wants to die. He's upset. Next verse is telling, but the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Now, do you think God doesn't know the answer to this question? In your estimation, it's this rhetorical question. Do you you think that that God is assuming that this answer should be yes or or no? No, no, it's not a trick question here. He's assuming that, that, that it's not right for Jonah to be angry. There's no justification for Jonah's anger. That's why he's asking him this. Are you justified in being angry? Do you have a right to be angry? Is your anger righteous? No! That's what God says. But what's Jonah thinking? Jonah's probably thinking, well, yeah, it is. So Jonah, it's it's, it's interesting that he doesn't answer God here. It's it's, it's very telling. He, He just walks away. Next text. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. He just... He just leaves, doesn't answer God. He just just goes. There he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's still holding out that God was going to blow these guys up. The crazy thing is God has got this major revival going on in Nineveh. Probably a lot of guys could use to be discipled right now. They really don't understand much. They've just repented. Jonah would be the guy to do it. But what's Jonah doing? He's outside God's work. He's outside God's grace. If God is not going to do it his way, he's out of here. He's gone. 
He, he left. So, so the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant and it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and he said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. Next next text. But God said to Jonah, again, he asked him, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And this time Jonah answers and looks what he says. It is I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. You know, this is, this is fascinating. Because when Jonah is first angry, Godzilla goes off in him. And God, God asks him about that. Don't, don't let the anger stay there, Jonah. Don't let it, don't embrace it. Jonah does. And now, look at Jonah. Now Jonah, is, is, he's gone from just getting angry to becoming an angry person. He's getting ticked off, ticked off over a stupid weed. He's getting all upset. You know, angry people, they just are angry about everything. Godzilla never sleeps. He just, it's just, they're angry about, there's nothing. No one can do anything right. Everything is wrong. They're just angry people all the time. When God says, if you harbor anger in your, in your heart, you need to let it go because if you don't, it will make you, and it's going to grow deep. It will make you an angry person. This is why he says, I think, Ephesians 4, 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Get rid of it. Don't let it sit there because if it does, it will be like a cancer. It's going to not just sit there, stay in one place. It's going to grow and it's going to destroy and it's going to create such a large, hideous, huge Godzilla that it is not going to be easy to kill at that point. You need to get rid of it. Uh, Can we back up a, a slide yet? Is it possible? Yeah. So God says, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand? Remember, we said anger is when that thing in your heart that you love, you put something in your heart that you love, it's threatened. Well, look at Jonah. What's threatened with Jonah? His comfort with the plant. His, his convenience, his reputation back home. But what's in God's heart? There's 100,000 plus people who are on their way to an eternity without him. And he says, Jonah, what's in your heart? What is getting you upset? What are you angry about? You're angry about a stupid weed. You're angry about your lawn. You're angry about the snowblower. The guy said he fixed it. He didn't really. You're angry because your spouse left something out again. You're angry because those dumb guys at Visa hit you with a finance charge when you weren't looking. You're, you're angry because your kid got a C instead of an A like he was supposed to and now the scholarship stuff is all done. What are you, what are you angry about? Is your heart mine? I mean, you want righteous anger? Then you've got to have your heart with, with mine. You're so bothered about all these other things. Are you bothered about the fact that 200,000 plus people in Erie are on their way to a Christless eternity? Are you worried about that? Does that bother you at all? Or just all these other things? All these other things. He comes and he says, what is it that you have a right to be angry? And an angry person, when that thing starts growing, the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, I do have a right to be angry. And what, what, what Jonah forgot 
is that the only reason why Israel was growing, the only reason why Israel was powerful, wasn't because of their righteousness. It wasn't because they were big and powerful. It's only because God was gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love and willing to forgive rebellion and wickedness and, and evil. And he wanted that for him. He really didn't care if it happened to anybody else. He'd rather not be there, actually, for other people. The answer to much of our anger is, is found in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate, here's the answer, to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ uh, God forgave you. What do you do with your anger? Some would say you suppress it. You just keep it down. You just don't let it out. You just hang on to it, but just, just, just let it, just suppress it. Well, that will end up destroying you in time, and you know as well as I do, sometimes it's just going to blow. Some would say, well, you express it. I had a, a counselor friend, he said he'd give people a stick, tell them to go out in the backyard and just bang real hard and scream. They had to lance the boil, you know, get it, get it all out. But uh, that is not the case these, these days. According to the American Psychology Association, Psychologists now say that this is a dangerous myth. Some people use this theory as a license to hurt others. Research has found that letting it rip with anger actually escalates anger and aggression and does nothing to help you or the person you're angry with to resolve the situation. You can suppress it, you can express it, or you can replace it. And that's what Paul is advocating here. He doesn't just say, quit doing it. He says, instead, so you're going to replace it. And the word order is, chief word is to forgive, to what? Uh, be kind and, back up again, I'm sorry, and compassionate to one another. And the way you do that is through forgiving each other. Most often, an anger in our heart is uh, somebody has done something to us. So we need to forgive them. Next slide, I'm sorry. Anger solution is forgiveness. Peter comes to Jesus one day and says, okay, okay, Jesus, uh, um, lots of idiot people, they keep doing stupid things, they make me so upset all the time, how many times am I supposed to forgive them? Seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven, that's a lot of times. Now, Jesus is not saying 490 times you have to forgive, but that 491st time, that's when you can let it blow and let them have it, man, let them really, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, Peter, this is a stupid question. It's like asking, how many times should I love my spouse? You, 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 don't, you don't love that way. You're a loving person. So you love your spouse all the time. You, you, just, you love them all the time. Jesus is saying, you don't count numbers of times. You for, you, you're a forgiving person, so you forgive them all the time. You just live in a state of forgiveness because God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love, and he, and he offers forgiveness for every kind of sin and rebe rebellion and wickedness all the time. That's who God is. He says, that's what you need to do. That's what you need to be. And so Jesus then gives a parable. And I don't have this on screen, so just listen real quick. Jesus is going to illustrate this for Peter, because it sounds like a lot of times Peter's thinking. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, 10,000 talents. One, that's 10,000 bags of gold, I think it might say, according to what version you got. One denarii 
equals one day's work. It was a fair wage for one day's work. One talent equals 6,000 denarii. One talent. So one talent is, is equivalent to about 17 years worth of wages. One talent. 10,000 talents. 17 years worth of wages for 10,000 people. I mean, that's a lot of money. He said, this guy, this guy got into trouble. I don't know how in the world he ran up such a deal, what kind of, how much money he embezzled, but, but 10,000, he owes a lot of money. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. They wouldn't come near repaying the debt, but okay. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient, this is humorous actually, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. There's no way he can pay. If, if Caesar died and left this guy as the sole beneficiary of the treasury of Rome, he wouldn't be able to pay. This was a lot of, of loot. But the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Canceled the debt, let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is not a nickel and dime stuff. It's like one third of a year's wages, ten, fifteen thousand dollars. You know, it's not easy to just forgive that. But he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. The fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, using the exact same words that he himself had used earlier: "Be patient with me, and I will pay you back." But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they told their master everything that had happened. When the master called the servant in, You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Then Jesus says this, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus is, is you phone this, Jesus is, is, is putting forgiveness into the category of an accounting principle, accounting term. Uh, you, you, when someone hurts us, they uh, gain a debt. Uh, they owe us something. Uh, maybe they've stolen our childhood from way back. We just wanted a normal family like all the other kids, you know. But, but no, not us. We, couldn't, so we had to make excuses for our parents or our father or mother or whatever else and, and live in hiding. But she said she would be with me. We would grow old together. But she left. She's destroyed my future. She hurt my kids. Um, they said this was a surefire thing. Listen, I worked so hard my whole life. I was so frugal, and I, but I took all my retirement and I gave it to them to do. And now I have nothing. Or, uh, all I've got is my reputation, and they've taken it. Somebody, by what they've done, has stolen something from you. It was really an injustice. It was truly wrong. And in, in your heart, it's as if there is books, and the account is open. They owe you. They, uh, often in our hearts, the books are open. People owe us. Now, the goofy thing is, some of the people, we don't even know where they are anymore. But they've done something to us in the past, and those books are still open. We play those tapes over in our mind. They owe us. Maybe the person who owes us has died. Books are still open. They owe us. And reality is that even if they could come back, even if they were sorry, you can't 
redo history. It is what it is. They're not going to be able to fix it. They can never pay us back is what it comes down to. But the books, books are open. And Jesus says, forgiveness is closing the account, erasing the debt. And you erase it primarily because God has erased a huge debt that you owed. It's so big you couldn't come near it, taking care of it. You were, you were doomed. But the master forgave you your debt. This is Jesus' expectation of us. Because we've been forgiven such a great debt, we need to close the books on other people, their debt they owe us, until we do. Anger will see that will make us angry people. Say, so, well, well, I want to do this maybe. How do I do this? Well, notice, first of all, that, that forgiveness was not words. Tell them, tell them you're sorry, Johnny. I'm sorry. That's not words. It's not a feeling. I feel forgiving. No, no, that's not the thing. It's truly closing the books. I've got a couple of friends, uh, counselor folk. And they said that if the pain is deep enough, what you need to do is you need to write a account-closed letter. And in this letter, you're going to write this to God, but you, you start off with this letter, and you're very specific about what this person did, how they hurt you, what it cost you. You can't just say, they did something bad and now I'm hurting. You can't go that generic. You've got to be as specific as you possibly can. What did they steal from you? How, did it, how was it stolen? How does it make you feel today? You've got, you got to write all that down. But then you can't stop there because that's kind of still hopeless in many ways. You have to include this in your letter. And by the way, if you want to copy this later, just email me or maybe I'll throw this in, in my next, uh, my thoughts. But you have to write this. Remember, you're writing to God. However, I recognize that I have hurt you deeply more than I will ever know. God, I've spurned you, not caring about your will or your heart. I've gone my own way, lying, stealing, gossiping, lusting, coveting. I have made many things, especially myself, primary over you. In your books, I owe you a great deal, much more than I could repay. I was deserving eternal hell. You personally took the consequences of my sin by sending your son to die in my place. You totally forgave me. You closed my account. Hence, I choose to forgive whoever for all they have done to me. From this day forth, I have erased the debt and am closing the account. I will live with the reality that this account is now closed. Take it before him. Pray it to him. Then take the letter and put it through the shredder. And then in an hour, when that picture comes back to your mind, you remind yourself, no, 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 that account's closed. In a week, when you're, when you're in, in your bed at night and suddenly you, those old tapes start playing again in your mind, you say, no, 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 hang on. The, 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 that, that, that account is closed. I've turned that over to the, the, you know, the divine collection agency. As far as I'm concerned, it is done. I've got, it, that account is closed. And the next time it comes up in your mind, you say, not that, that account's closed. You're forgiven 70 times 7 times 7 times 7 times 7. It's, it's done. It's done. And if... That's where you're going. In time, you'll find that those instances where it comes back to you to haunt you will be uh, fewer and farther between. What you're saying is, I'm closing the accounts of those who, who owe me. I'm releasing that, that, that anger. Now, you, you, if you are somebody who you would say this about yourself, or if you ask some of your friends, they might say, yeah, you've got an anger problem. 
just, just, well, we're going to assume that that's not true, okay, that those mean people, it's not true. But you need to act on that. So the second application would be this. I would encourage you to, to pick up this book. You can get it at Amazon or lots of different places. Uh, the Anger Workbook by Les Carter and Frank Menerth. And, and it's, it's a, you just do quiet time. You don't have to tell me when you're doing this. You going through this, just you and God, opening up God's word with this, will help you understand your anger through his eyes and release it to him. It'd be an incred- I think it'd be an incredible opportunity for, for discipleship. I've been through this. For everybody to just go through this powerful, powerful thing. Let me encourage you to do that. Because until we, God's people, are saying, you know what? I'm putting a moratorium on the monster Godzilla in my heart. I'm claiming my heart a Godzilla-free zone. I'm not going to hurt anybody else. I'm not going to live in that destruction. I am not going to become an angry person. I've only got so many years left on this earth. And I'm going to reflect his compassionate and graciousness and slow to anger and abounding in love and, and willing to forgive wickedness and rebellion and, and evil. That's who I'm going to be. Unless we have that kind of uh, decision that we make just between us and God, and it's a decision that's going to be tested, you have to make that over and over and over. And when you do slip and fall, you come back to him and say, God, remember this decision. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to go. Until we do that, our, our hearts, our homes, our work, Godzilla will be on the loose. And he'll do a lot of damage and hurt all the time until the time we die. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. So is Godzilla a loose in your heart, in your home, 